I'm Mike Sherritt, one of your pastors, and I do want to give full credit to this idea of the shepherding community in our uh, staff meetings. We love to co-labor collaboratively, and uh, this is Pastor Jesse Robinson's idea, including having the elders and their wives share testimonies and pray for us through Lent. So I, I just, very, very exciting. The rationale for it is printed out for you in the inside cover of the bulletin, so I won't go over that at this time. We're going to spend a lot of time in this series in the first uh, half of 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can open there. The text is also provided for you in the bulletin, as is an outline that may help you follow my reflections on the text following my reading of it, which I will do now. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever wondered, because you are so precious to Jesus Christ, what kind of care can you expect from the Lord? What things can you assume God is committed to use for your welfare, your spiritual growth, and your protection? You ever wondered that? The Bible, thankfully, is very clear that the Spirit of God is pleased to use means by which the Lord shepherds you, cares for you, promotes your welfare. You have your Bibles to read. We're given the gift of prayer. We have the gift of fellowship. You have assurances that God is absolutely sovereign over every detail of your life. And the Lord has given you, for your spiritual welfare, for your protection, he has given you elders. How many of you wake up every morning and go, thank you, Jesus, For elders given to my spiritual care. This text is putting on public display what the elders are supposed to do. Let me ask for a moment every elder in the room to just stand, please. Just stand where you are. Just want to acknowledge our elders. Frank, Mike, Jesse, John, Carlton, Bob, Mark, Jesse... Thank you, brothers. 
So why should you even care about this text if specifically speaking, Peter is talking to the elders among you? Because, not least, later this spring, you will have the opportunity to nominate from this flock men to be trained and eventually elected as elders. So you need to know what sort of men you're supposed to nominate. And inasmuch as in verse 3, Peter tells the elders to be an example to the flock you have in the lives of these men. Exhibit A of one example of Christian conduct. You need this text, flock? as much as we elders need this text. So what is this text? It's expectations for shepherding care in the flock. Here we go. Number one, what are the elders supposed to do? Verse two, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. So this is one of these beautiful situations where we have all the technical terms for church officers. Elders, it's the word from which we get Presbyterian. They're simply older. They're experienced. They have wisdom in life. Uh, When he says shepherd the flock, he's using the word shepherd. And this exercising oversight comes from the Greek word episkopos, episcopal, sometimes translated bishop. So you have here for you the dual function of the rule of an elder. They're called to shepherd, they're called to rule. They're called to care for your spiritual needs, they're called to lead and give spiritual oversight to the church over which they're called by Jesus to shepherd. Now, Peter didn't invent this. He actually received this image of care from Jesus himself in one of those three post-resurrection appearances John records in his gospel in John 21, Jesus confronts Peter, restores Peter, asks him three times, do you love me? And then he tells Peter, John 21, 16, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And in the Presbyterian form of church government, you, the flock, have the privilege of electing these men because you have seen them shepherd among you. It is not a popularity contest. It is not, oh, that guy's a really successful man in the business community. Let's stick him in the office. No, it's the Grammys. It's the Oscars. You have seen them perform in the flock using ruling and shepherding gifts. And on the strength of that, you say, I think you should receive further training and perhaps stand for election. So let's tease out briefly the three functions that are embedded in shepherding. First, there's leading. Your elders, not just the senior pastor, but your elders collaboratively are responsible to set vision for the church and to basically answer the question for all of us, where are we going as a flock? What does this church look like in Charlottesville as a city set on a hill? How do they work with the staff collaboratively to bring about your spiritual flourishing? They lead. They also feed the flock. And I've provided for you Paul's words, very important, from Titus chapter 1. You might look at them in the, in the outline. Paul says, an overseer, again, episkopos, the words are used interchangeably. Elder, episkopos, overseer, they're all used interchangeably. 
An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Push pause. What would save anyone, not just elders, but all of you, what would save you from becoming any of those things? Only time spent with the most beautiful person in the world, Jesus Christ. I would be all of that and worse, but for the restraining mercy of Jesus and Jesus showing me he is far superior than any kind of sin I would be tempted to pursue. Only Jesus can rescue me, you, and the elders from these things. And then he says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. If you happen to notice these qualities evidenced in your deacons, your staff, and your elders, it must be because of what? Well, they've obviously spent a lot of time with Jesus. You can't spend time with Jesus Christ and something of the glory of his moral DNA rub off on you. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's because you're spending time with Jesus. And then he finishes, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Why is this important? Beloved, because you need the word of God like you need oxygen. And your elders are responsible to both, did you see the positive? Teach you the truth and the negative. Guard you from error. You should expect that not just your pastors, but every one of your elders has a vital, daily, living relationship with the truth of God's word. Why? You are protected and promoted in your welfare by the word of God. Heaven forbid that Kelly, Jesse, or I seek to preach to you anything we hadn't first preached to ourselves. And repented in the Lord's presence. I don't do this well. Have mercy on me, Jesus. So, the last little, uh, last part of leading is protecting. Sheep are constantly in danger from temptations within. In this context, he's going to talk about pride. You'll hear a lot more about that in the series. And danger from, from without. He'll talk about the roaring lion, the devil, seeking someone to devour. So the shepherds have the privilege of caring for you, protecting you. I want to reference one very important passage in this regard where the Apostle Paul, at the, on his way back from one of his missionary journeys, makes a stop off to a special meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's going back to Jerusalem, and he calls the elders of the church. He's burdened by something. It's the last time they're going to see him. So this is the last thing Paul has to say. 
Acts 20, 27. He recalls his ministry with them, and he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why? They need the word of God like they need oxygen. And he preached the whole counsel of God, not just his pet peeve passages. It was a full-orbed, full-bridled declaration of all the scriptures. And then he tells these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word again, episkopos. It literally means to look at closely. God has made you these. To care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And what specifically will the fierce wolves do? He says in verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, distorted to draw away the disciples after them. What will be the result of that? You won't have the word of God like you need oxygen. So here's this warning for the elders to be stewards of the word of God for the growth of the church and for its protection. Now, in all of this, Paul is concerned that your elders are worthy of imitation. He says in verse 3, being an example to the flock. Worthy of imitation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tweak that slightly and say limited imitation because I know my own heart and I know the hearts of all your elders and deacons and staff. And we would, we would say this, we know and we would never want to pretend to be perfect. So there's a limited imitation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the elders in the church, this church, I can tell you, I know these men, essentially see themselves as signposts. Oh, beloved flock, as you look at me, please look at Jesus. Imitate me as I'm given the grace in some measure to imitate Jesus. They are signposts to the true shepherd, Jesus. And that's why a shepherd's self-watch is so critical. Listen to what Paul tells young Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. See, everyone that's young in the audience is immediately invited into this. You may not be a pastor, you may not be an elder, but regardless, let no one look down on your youth, but set an example to the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why on the teaching? Because the flock needs the word of God like they need. Persist in this, for so by doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What's the principle here? It's that you can't give away what you don't have. Far more than your elders spending time in strategy, preparing sermons and teaching, thinking about how to do small groups well. Far more than that is their personal, deep dive into the heart of Jesus in his word, in his presence every day. You can't give away what you don't have. I must go get grace in order to be a vessel of God's grace. My prayer constantly, Lord, let me be a vessel of your grace and wisdom to this church. I've got to get that grace from Jesus And I've got to get the wisdom of God's word from Jesus. Or I have nothing good to give you. I know Kelly believes that. I know Jesse believes that. I know Marty believes that. I know your ministry directors believe that. 
All right, we're looking at expectations for shepherding from your elders. The last two points are briefer. How are they supposed to do this? Peter is very concerned with this because he devotes most of our text to explaining how. He is acknowledging how power corrupts, is potentially corrupts human hearts. Elders are given authority. They're called to lead. They have limited power under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is human beings are tempted to the pride of place, self-importance, and a desire for control. These are idols that ministry has a way of feeding. And isn't there an implied premise here that the worst leaders are proud, arrogant, and selfish? The worst leaders, whether in a church, a university, a government, or a business, the worst leaders are proud, arrogant, and selfish. And the best leaders are humble and other-centered. That's why he's going to go on and warn God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'll deal with that in subsequent weeks. Come back. We've got a lot more to say about pride and humility. But specifically, he delineates the temptations inherent in a leadership position. He, and, and, and he contrasts them with a better way. So, for example, the first, verse 2, not under compulsion, there are some churches where the men look at each other and goes, have you served yet on the elder board? No. Well, it's high time you did, as if it's a prison sentence. No, seriously. This happens in some churches. These kind of leaders look like the people at the restaurant who are like, your servers are just, they're just, they're just going through the motions. They don't, they, don't, they don't care about me. They are just going through the motions. What's the better way? Verse 2, willingly as God would have you. How would God have you serve anyone else, any of us, as a response to his love, as a response to the fact that Jesus Christ is never not serving you? Right this instance, Jesus Christ is serving you. He is in heaven praying for you. He is directing every detail of your life. He is intensely interested in being the God from whom all blessings flow. We serve willingly because this is why, how God has loved us and served us in the pattern of the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now that reality should smite the heart with a joyful, thankful willingness. So there's this, there's this weird dynamic in church leadership, and it's this. It isn't a duty, it isn't a burden, it's a sobering privilege, kind of a paradox. I don't know any church leaders in, in our church who feel worthy of the call or deserving of the call, but they step up with this sort of attitude, all right, Lord, if, if you have willed this and these gifts have been acknowledged by the church, I am willing to do this for Jesus' sake taking no glory for themselves. And doesn't that produce an atmosphere in a church family, a winsome atmosphere, modeling the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly came to give all for you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Next motive, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain is greed satisfied through fraud. 
These are the preachers who quickly learn you can steal people's money by manipulating them. That is a wretched reason to be a preacher. Or the businessman who says, wow, I can increase the visibility of my business by becoming a church leader. That is a deplorable reason to be a church leader. Can I just say it gently? It is. I'll let my head roll for that. That isn't why your leaders serve in this church, I'll tell you. The true shepherd is not in the office for what he can get out of it, but for what he can give as a platform to bless others. And then the last one is not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This verb, domineer, it refers to forcibly subduing threats, intimidation. I hate to have to tell you this, but I must. This is a problem in our PCA churches. Michael Kruger, president of RTS Charlotte, just produced a book, the title, Bully Pulpit, Confronting Spiritual Abuse in the Church. A sad, tragic, deplorable state of affairs when church leaders, almost always the pastors, not our ruling elders, abuse the spiritual privilege of leadership given to them. Finally, what are, we, what are we saying? On display for you, the flock, is the way God has called your elders to shepherd you. And you see there's something in it for you as well. Finally, Paul, get, excuse me, have I said Paul when I meant Peter through this sermon? Forgive me. Peter supplies a why. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, if you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you realize Peter's very concerned with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is because believers live in light of the final appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything you do counts forever. Nothing you do is secret. Everything will become known. There'll be a day of accounting, particularly for leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. I don't have it in the bulletin, just listen. This is just scary sobering for a church leader. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So elders, pastors, even, I think James, doesn't James say, let not many of you become teachers, you'll incur a stricter judgment? This is, whoa, but that's good. You want leaders who know there's a day of accounting coming for how they cared for you. And Peter's point is their hard work is noticed and rewarded. He references this crown of glory, a special honor of recognition, probably drawing from the athletics the wreath of victory from, from the culture of that day, Paul refers to a crown that all believers will receive at the end of their lives. And there's this amazing picture in Revelation 
of the immediate impulse of all those who have been crowned by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Revelation 4 that the 24 elders were around the throne of God. So finally, they have sight unbridled sight, sinless sight of what God looks like. And what is their impulse? It says they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. By your word they existed. The, 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 so you see the picture? Jesus has crowned you and in his presence we will cast them at his feet. <gasps> You get all the glory. So true shepherds receive a crown not, not as the reason for what they do, but the result of what they do. To me, there's a difference. Elders in this church, what is the reason you shepherd according to the pattern Jesus has given you? The glory of God. The result is this promise of a crown. We are all called to do everything we do, everything, all of us, for the glory of God. And what is stunning about this is that the Lord Jesus Christ rewards what he supplies. See, it's all by grace. If any of us in any life endeavor have done anything of value, it is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. No one is going to stand before the throne and say, look at me. The breath, the ability, the wisdom, the time, the skill, it's all by grace. Jesus, Jesus supplies what he also rewards. And that is never, never more true than at the cross where Jesus chooses to share his glory with you. The living God is a savior who chooses to share his glory with you. God chooses to share his glory with you. What happened at the cross? The Lord Jesus Christ for 33 years earned a crown of righteousness. In thought, word, and deed, he never deviated for a second from his father's will. He loved his father with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and word, thought, and deed. He earned a crown of utter perfect righteousness. And on the cross, Jesus set that aside, took a crown of thorns. He takes your sin, the last thing he deserved. He takes your sin. Peter already alluded to this in chapter 224. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his stripes you are healed. Jesus Christ took that crown. He laid it aside and he now offers you the glory of a sacrifice for sin. How do you become clean in the sight of God? You, take, you allow Jesus Christ to bear the crown of thorns for you. You let him take your sin. He shares that glory of sacrifice with you. That's how you become cleansed. That's how you become saved. That's how you become reconciled to God. Jesus shares that glory with you. And then he gives that crown of righteousness to all who ask. All you need to do is know your need and ask. 
He's delighted to share the glory of his righteousness with you. And so, beloved, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe these promises, what do you lack to be right with God? Jesus has removed your sin. He's crowned you in his own righteousness. No wonder the Bible says that's all you need. This is stunningly good news. This is mercy through Jesus. Jesus is delighted to share his glory with you. Peter alludes to this in verse 1 when he describes himself as a partaker of the glory to be revealed. I think that's an allusion to the fact that Jesus can't wait to share with you the glory of a resurrected body. And that's coming. That's Easter Sunday. The last thing I want you to notice is the way Peter describes himself in this. Verse 1, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So go back in your Bible and think about Peter's emotional, spiritual, personal state when he was literally a witness to Christ's sufferings as he's being tried and as he's hanging on the cross. What was Peter at that moment? He was a deserter, a denier, a betrayer. He forsook his best friend in his greatest hour of need. Peter witnessed the sufferings of Christ as a broken, wretched denier. And these are the kinds of people Jesus loves to save, to share his glory with you. So all you need to know to receive the love of God in Jesus Christ is your great need of it. And he is all too delighted to lavish it upon you. Do you see? Only Jesus can take your failures and give you in exchange a crown. Now when people in a church community believe that and soak that in and meditate on that and share that with one another, Watch out. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for my beloved brothers and sisters, your precious sheep. How dear they are to you. Please use these words of Holy Scripture to encourage them strengthen them, confirm them, establish them, love them, enliven them with the glory that you are all too willing to share with us. Transform us into a shepherding community for the sake of him who is the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.